This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, episode number six, The Veil and Its Symbols. In this podcast episode, we will be looking at the tarot, and with us is a special guest, Mr. Stuart Sudicum. Stuart is a writer and educator currently residing in Brooklyn, New York. He's lectured on the Western esoteric tradition for a number of organizations and institutions, including the New York School of Visual Arts, Morbid Anatomy Museum, and the Seattle Esoteric Book Conference. His writing has appeared in periodicals such as Clavis Journal and Heathen Harvest, and he's presently preparing to publish a two-volume study on Arthur Edward Waite's Rectified Tarot, which will be the first to analyze the symbolism of the cards Waite designed in the context of all of his publicly available works. Mr. Sudicum also provides guitar and vocals for Apibus, A-P-I-B-U-S, an experimental folk music ensemble. So it was a great interview. We had a lot of fun, very informative. Stuart's a great guy. So here you go. Let's get into it. Okay, here we are. And we've got Stuart Sudicum on, on the podcast. We're honored to have you here, Stuart. Welcome. Thank you very much. And we have Hi. got Janice here, as always. Hello. What's happening, Janice? Hey, what's going on? So, yeah, thanks for joining us. So, Stuart, we have you on here to talk about the tarot, specifically the, the Waite Smith tarot. But um, first, can we maybe hear about how you got into the tarot to begin with? How did this all start for you? Sure. Um, well, actually, I got to know Arthur Waite before I got to know his tarot. I first encountered his work on Paracelsus when I was 16, and I guess to one degree or another, that discovery has directed me down the path to where I am today. Uh, I'll be 32 in August, so that was just about half a lifetime ago. But um, uh, I was given Waite's tarot as a gift by a friend back in college. It must have been 2008 or 2009 or something. Uh, but this friend um, was a stage magician uh, and a huge fan of Houdini. And interestingly, like wait, Houdini started off in 19th century spiritism uh, because his little sister died and he wanted to get in touch with her. And both Waite and Houdini became skeptics and made it their business to unmask charlatans uh, uh, which seems to me like a pretty good way of having revenge on people who would manipulate people's faith and take advantage of their grief. But anyway, um, my magician pal uh, was an atheist, or he is an atheist, he's still an atheist. And uh, I'd like to think that even though Waite remained Catholic and uh, the work that I've done on the tarot has made me more religious than I ever thought I would be, um, uh, the work that I've done on the tarot should be of interest to uh, any skeptic who better wants to who wants to better understand uh, religious iconography. And um, so, the time I recognized a lot of the uh, symbolism in Waite's tarot because I had been reading Waite's work, uh, and I told my friend, "I'll learn how to read these cards," and he was like, "That's ridiculous, but go for it." And so I was like, "Okay." Uh, and little did I know that that was going to turn into a huge project. Um, I started just writing in the margins of my copy of Waite's Pictorial Key to the Tarot. And um, those notes eventually outgrew the book. 
and uh and they started to turn into a book of their own and around the same time people started asking me uh, to show them things about the tarot because they knew that i uh, understood a lot of this stuff that nobody else understood about it because i was reading wade's work which there's this whole myth that his work is like kind of unreadable or something, which is not true. Um, oh, I agree. Uh, anybody... It's totally absurd. Yeah, it, it makes no sense. It's it's like a comparison I've often made is like a lot of literary critics hate H.P. Lovecraft because he uses these deliberate archaisms. Right. And it's just like, well, yeah, but like you're completely missing the point of this work. <laughs> if uh, if like you want to read. Uh, like this like romantic subject matter in like some sort of like sterile like clinical language uh but um yeah uh i just i was reading Waite's work and uh i realized that for some reason other people didn't seem to be and the more that i looked around uh at like other people's interpretation of the tarot cards i was like no one has ever done any kind of study of Waite's tarot symbolism based on Waite's work. And it's still, it's still, uh, other than the work that I've done on it, uh, to my knowledge, unless there's somebody working, uh, really, really privately, um, it still hasn't been done. Uh, so hopefully that will change in the next few years because, um, I'm in contact with a couple of people that are doing a lot of really great work, uh, with Waite's stuff. And, um, and that'll be, that'll be available, uh, pretty soon. Very cool. So you're working on, are you working on a book or uh, what is it exactly? Yeah, I have uh, a, uh, a two volume book that is probably going to be out in the next year or two. Um, it just depends on stuff with publishers. Um, uh, it's drawn uh, from some of the lectures that I was giving to my students, because as I said, I was teaching tarot card symbolism to people. And those lectures are actually the source for a lot of the material that um, you see in the, the Clavis Journal article that I wrote, um, Secret Tradition and Silence. And, uh, Excellent. and it's a superb, it's superb. And I recommend it to anyone listening. Uh, please go pick up that, uh, that uh, Clavis 3 um, it's one of one of the best articles I've I've read on uh, on on the Wade Smith Tarot actually. Thanks, man. I I appreciate. It. I'm glad somebody read it. I kind of got the impression that that uh, that no one had, but but I guess people are, are just quietly working away, and that, and I suppose that's how it works in uh, in esoteric fields. But um, uh, yeah, the book is um. At least I, I was, I've been trying to uh, to title it a guide to the rectified tarot of Arthur Edward Waite because I feel like um, there isn't one. But the guys at the publisher uh, say that that is not nearly an exciting enough title, <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm I'm toying with the idea of calling it the Secret Tradition and Fragments, being a guide to the rectified tarot of Arthur Edward Waite, restoring the symbols upon the veil of nature to their ancient splendor for the benefit of the sick and the restoration of rusted, rusted iron to its former estate. Yeah, that's uh, that. that's, that's like a <laughs> straight out of 1915 title. I love it. Hey, it has, it has, yeah. the, word, it has the word "secret" in it, so it's 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 going to be a hit. 
I know. Actually, if you go through the catalogs of any of these esoteric publishers, everything is like the mystery, this, the secret, this. Like, there's pretty much not a uh, a title that, that doesn't have that in it. Yeah, it's <laughs> mandatory. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, um, uh, some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about tonight is is drawn from these same lecture notes. So you may, you may have like heard some of this before. Um, if you saw me talk at esoteric book conference or, uh, you read the article, but, um, yeah, uh, feel free to jump in at any point and divert me if you have specific things that you want to hear more about. Yeah, we, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll probably give you the floor for most of it, but you know, we might bump it here and bump it there just to, unfold different aspects yeah i'm ready for you to okay. just kind of uh go for it so let's pop it off with a question um so let's be, let's start in a simple way uh what is the waitsmith tarot and i want to ask you something related to that what was the waitsmith tarot and you know since it's become a little bit of a controversy what exactly was weight's role and what was Smith's role in creating this tarot? Because there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of controversy. The people want to know. The people are screaming, screaming in the streets. You know, they want to know the truth. Okay, so, um, well, it's the the basics of this is that um, that Waite was the designer of these cards, um, and uh and smith was the artist that he hired to execute them and uh there is a long history uh behind the tarot tradition that weight is working in and so um i feel like in order to fully answer your question i need to explain what tarot cards are and also where weight came into them um because uh tarot cards were originally a variety of playing cards that they're first attested in Renaissance Italy. And um, scholars' efforts to date them have usually placed them uh, in the 14th century at the earliest and the 15th century at the latest. And most present scholars don't uh, really buy the 14th century thing anymore. They favor that later date. Um, but they were originally intended for gambling, and they're still widely used for that purpose across Europe. Um, but they're generally decorated with the same variety of traditional patterns and symbols that are commonly seen in other early printed matter, such as the stylistic flourishes of book ornament or the trademarks of paper makers and printers. And uh, uh, you'll see similar iconography in woodcuts or engravings that are uh, in emblem books. And all of these kinds of printed embellishments were modeled upon illuminations found in manuscript books that predate the printing press, which in turn descend from older types of ornament from a less literate Europe, motifs that you'd see on textiles or coins or baked goods or jewelry or furniture or architecture. And um, a lot of those decorations are still so ubiquitous in everyday life that um, they've pretty much been rendered invisible because they're so commonplace, but they're out there. I live in New York City where you can see traditional forms of European ornament on most older buildings just walking down the street. And my mom was last in town. We had a great time just walking around and taking in the city and talking about the stuff that we saw around us. Um, but uh, this tradition 
of tarot that weight is taking part in uh, doesn't really begin there. I mean, the, the iconography is um, is older than the tarot. And so, like, really, like, where does it begin? This is, this is a hard question to answer. Um, uh, and the tarot as an organizational system or an iconographic framework uh, is firmly in the Renaissance. Wade is not a Renaissance guy, so he has nothing to do with, with developing that. Um, uh, but the, the, um, the thing that Wade is a part of uh, is something that starts in 1781. And this is when we get the first known public suggestion that the designs on tarot cards might contain information other than what's necessary to play games with them. And that appeared in the eighth volume of Antoine Cortegeblin's grand study, Monde Primitif, The Primitive World. And um, this guy, Cortegeblin, was a former Huguenot pastor um, that's like a, a sort of French Calvinist. Uh, he was an early archaeologist, um, to use the term generously. Uh, uh, he made a lot of stuff up. <laughs> um, but in Mon Primitif, he proposes that the designs appearing on tarot cards originated in Egypt, where he alleges that they were used to explain the secret teachings of ancient Egyptian religion. He explains in the text that he was struck by this idea when he happened to catch a glimpse of one of the cards, the world trump, as a friend played the game. According to Court de Geblin's account, he asked to examine the rest of the deck, and in 15 minutes he had formulated the Egyptian origin theory and created a huge headache for weight. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, can, you, you can still hear people today talking about the Egyptian origins of the tarot. Yes, yes, you can. In fact, I would venture to guess, though, I mean, there are a couple of guys named Decker and Dummett who have put out a bunch of um, books uh, about tarot history that, although they're not perfect, they're, they're pretty good. They're, they're better they're good, than almost. Yeah. Well, they're, I, I won't say they're better than almost anything. They really are better than anything because the rest of, of I mean, I'm not going to speak negatively about other people's books, but tarot is a subject where they're is a lot of work to be done by anyone who's just willing to invest their time in um, and really take a strong interest in unfolding the the mysteries of the subject because they haven't been. And the books that people put out right now, um, uh, by and large, don't even um, make an effort to to uncover what's going on there. Oh yeah, but, I agree. Um, I would say, uh, not to interrupt you for too long, but I would say, you know, I, I don't, I agree with you and that's why I'm so glad you're on the show because aside from maybe Robert Michael Place, and I, I like Paul Houston's book, Mystical Origins of the Tarot, and Decker, I mean, a lot of the other stuff that's coming out is just frankly garbage. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, I see it as, as like a lack of creativity and a lack of interest. These are largely people regurgitating the same dumb ideas or like coming up with lazy new ideas. Uh, one of the big criticisms that, that Waite makes of uh, fake origins of the tarot is that they're just so uncreative um, that like <laughs> a fake story, like the chemical wedding of, of, uh, of Christian Rosenkreutz, this is not like a story to take literally. Um, but it's, well, a, 
it's an it's an allegorical narrative um, which appears as like a kind of pseudo history to explain the uh, the life of the founder of Rosicrucianism, and um, and anyone who believes that uh, Christian Rosenkreutz was a real person just hasn't done any research on Rosicrucianism, uh, and this is something that Waite got himself into some trouble uh, for because he didn't believe that uh, that uh, that story was a true story, but he, he nonetheless devoted his life to Rosicrucian philosophy and, uh, and, and did really amazing work with it. And so the thing is that, you know, we can, we can make invented stories and fantasies and there's a lot to be gained from these, but there's nothing to be gained from just like, like spinning these like dumb yarns to, to like sell a book here and there. It's it's not like some of these like interesting stories from from the past weren't done just for that, just to make a buck. But um, there's just uh, there's total dearth of uh, of creativity from from even Waits time. He's he's observing this, and in our time, it's it's worse. But the Egyptian origin theory is really one of the most tired theories um, about the tarot, um, and. Although uh, we know now that this theory of origin is incorrect, uh, I think it's important to, to say that Quirk de Geblin wasn't just speaking at random. Like when, when he says that he formulated this idea in 15 minutes, it doesn't do credit to the fact that he'd been a Freemason for 10 years. And he doesn't talk about that in Long Primitive, but he couldn't help being struck by the fact that some of the imagery decorating the cards does seem to echo his fraternity's characteristic iconography. For example, the Pope, which in Wade's deck is called the Hierophant, he's depicted in front of two pillars. Justice is holding a scale. Hermit is holding a lantern. The star in the world uh, show an allegory of nature or truth, depending on who you talk to, in various states of nudity. And the fool has a dog. Um, a dog is rearing on its hind legs. Um, uh, it sort of looks like the constellation Sirius, uh, uh, and maybe the fool is uh, is in a pose that that looks a little bit like Orion. Uh, but uh, the world has four, the four living creatures of Ezekiel and the Apocalypse. Now, uh, if you aren't familiar with uh, the symbol system of Freemasonry, like it doesn't really matter that much because um, although all of these things that I've been listing off will raise the eyebrow of, of someone uh, who has been through some Masonic degrees, uh, Waite designed his rectified tarot to be accessible to everyone. And, and he felt like these symbols really did belong to everyone. and They're not native to Freemasonry any more than they're native to the tarot. Um, but Masonry no. did have an important, uh, what'd you say? I was going to say, no, in fact, it's, it's Freemasonry that um, collected these things in order to preserve them. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Uh, when we, uh, when we look at Masonry, I think the best way to, to talk about it is that these were kind of the first guys doing comparative mythology. I mean, yep. there, there, are, there have been people doing things like that for a while, but uh but I think that with, with masonry, you get sort of like an organized school of what we today would, would consider comparative mythology as like a, um, 
as sort of like a branch of religious studies, because these, although they're working within a Judeo-Christian framework, uh, this is something that, uh, to some extent, um, I mean, th- these guys were Joseph Campbelling it up before that was a thing. Yeah, well, I also think it is significant to mention that although the tarot doesn't necessarily have Egyptian origins, the you know the Renaissance arose from the translation of the Hermetica, which was you know a, a, a Alexandrian rendering of of Hermopolitan Egyptian uh, ideas. And that in turn, you know, those ideas coupled with, uh, you know, then later Neoplatonic uh, theurgy uh, sort of produced the Renaissance as we know it. And the Renaissance is what produced the tarot. So there is there there is the influence um, down the road, you could say, you know, if you the influence of Egyptian theology is present, but through that filter of Renaissance European culture, which was actually a, you know, and you have that Catholic overlay too. Yeah. I think that I, this is, this is a point that can be made, but, um, uh, although we have like hermeticism as an Alexandrian school, I think that broadly speaking, um, the the interest that we see in the Renaissance uh, is coming from the influx of Greek stuff that, uh, with the fall of the the Byzantine Empire and like the, the conquest of, of Constantinople and, and all of that, uh, we get that stuff coming in and an influx back into Europe um, as as people are fleeing with it. Uh, you also have uh, Moorish invasions, bringing that stuff up too. Um, yeah. uh, Moorish, Moorish Neoplatonism uh, in Spain certainly uh, had some influence there. Uh, it's a long and, and convoluted history. And, you know, like to some extent, we can talk about um, the Mediterranean world in general as, um, as being something that was not disconnected from uh, from ancient Egyptian mythology, but the way in which it was portrayed in the 19th century is, is just totally wrong. Uh, and the origin, <laughs> the origin that uh, that Court de Gevelin was giving at the at the end of the 18th century, this is like even more wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stuart, when when these cards were were put together and these symbols were kind of placed together, do you think that maybe um, this wasn't even an unusual? thing i mean they weren't created for esoteric purposes initially do you think this combination of symbolism was just like you were saying earlier just kind of the normal symbols seen in everyday life absolutely um i would say that uh you know even i I don't want to give the impression that there was no symbolism prior to 1781 when i say they were created uh for gambling purposes i'm just trying to uh to emphasize that uh, that they weren't created by like uh, you know like a mystical order as far as I know. Uh, sure. They they were um, they were created out of out of iconography though that absolutely has a religious history. Like the image of the wheel of fortune is a really good example. Um, this is an idea that uh, has been around for a really long time. Uh, it's a picture of an allegory of fate turning a wheel and there are guys strapped to the wheel and uh you know they're subject to the turning uh, the guy who's on top 
Uh, maybe he's in charge for today, but the guy who is, is going down on the side, well, he was on top before, but the wheel keeps on turning and somebody who's down, he's coming up next. So um, this, this iconography uh, is attested long before tarot cards were attested. And so, uh, you know, to some extent, these ideas really do connect back around to, uh, to very ancient concepts. And we see them in use uh, a long time before. And like explaining that symbolism is a large uh, part of the work that I've done. But uh when it comes to uh, when it comes to like how did the tarot come together? Like how did people choose this particular combination of images? I think the thing is that you know what they had to do was when you're making a deck of cards for gameplay and you want to easily recognize the uh, cards and distinguish them from one another, and you're going to make a sequence of uh, cards that don't have. Um, pips on them that is the little marks used to show like there's two hearts on the two of hearts or three hearts and the three of hearts and a modern uh playing card deck um the suits would have been different at that time but it's, it's the same idea uh there in, in a tarot deck are 22 cards that don't have suits and so they had to be able to tell them apart from one another and so they have uh, pictures on them and they have names and um and these pictures would have just represented, uh, you know, 22 pictures uh, of of iconography that was recognizable to the game players, and um, it's it's iconography that's all over the place. Uh, like I said, it's it's on everything. Uh, it's on the sides of buildings. It's it's on on people's clothes. It's um, in in general. Uh, whether we're talking about the Renaissance or um, late 18th century, uh, it's still uh, it's still a part of of their lives, and to some extent, it's still a part of our lives, but um, maybe less, maybe less than it, than it used to be. Uh, we've uh, we've started to move towards um, uh, like the aesthetics of emptiness and uh, minimalism a lot in the last couple of years. And so uh, I don't think that houses that are built and new are going to have the sort of beautiful carvings and things like that, like, uh, like William Morris would have designed. Right. Uh, but we still do have that kind of iconography in our daily lives. Uh, and, and it's not something that was absent from uh, from the lives of those people who were uh, uh, beginning to develop esoteric interpretations uh, in the 18th century, based upon Masonic training in uh, interpreting old symbols. So, um, to some extent, it's completely normal pictures of everyday life, but also normal everyday life is completely full of images that have a very deep uh, symbolic and spiritual origin. Very nicely said, Stuart. So when, from your research, when, uh, when did people start using these cards for divination? Well, um, this is interesting because the first account of divination that we have uh, in like a, like a written form is in Cortegevlin's, uh, uh, encyclopedia, it's not written by him. He mentions at the end of his article on the tarot uh, that 
Spanish playing cards are during his time being used for divination and uh, suggests that this is also something that uh, can be done with tarot cards. But then he brings in this other guy, this guy Comte de Molay, uh, who um, he gives an account of, uh, of tarot divination that has a lot of the same features of uh, Court de Gevelin's account, but there's a couple of weird things about it. In fact, uh, it's so weird uh, that it's kind of hard to explain in a lot of ways. He, for example, talks about the Egyptian origin theory without mentioning that the guy whose book he's published in has invented it. Uh, he seems totally unaware of Court de Gevelin's paper. Uh, he uh, describes meanings of the cards that are at odds with what came before it. Uh, what Court de Gevelin writes, he either ignores or contradicts. So um, uh, the theory that's arisen out of this by modern historians like Decker and Dummett um, is that uh, Comte de Molay uh, may have written what he wrote about tarot divination prior to Court de Gevelin. And um, this raises the question as to whether or not uh, Court de Gevelin may be lying about his uh, 15-minute creation of this origin. Mm, interesting. So the reasons why he might lie about that um, are tied up with uh, some of the Masonic stuff that we're talking about. Because uh, Court de Gedlin was involved with the Rite of Philethes and some other uh some other Masonic groups that are tied to the early history of Martinistic and Rosicrucian thought. Um, this is a subject of like a lot of debate uh, as to, as to what was really going on at that time. I, I don't know if there's anyone who really knows, maybe there's somebody deep in the instituted mysteries, like holding all the keys, but I certainly cannot explain this stuff. Um, but suffice to say, uh, Comte de Millet gives this account of tarot divination, and we actually have some stuff to prove that uh, he's not just making it up off the top of his head. It would be way easier if we could say, okay, 1781, Freemasons just start making up meanings for tarot cards. Awesome. Job done. Case closed. But it's not really that easy because we have some stuff from a few decades earlier where people have decks of cards that they've written meanings on. And this is in Italy, um, mm -hmm. in Bologna. So those, uh, those decks, some of the meanings that they've written down, these meanings match the ones that Comte de Molay gives. So it seems like there really was some kind of tradition in as much as a tradition involves uh, a, a meaning that is copied from one generation to the next generation. And, and uh, it was copied by someone uh, and, and uh, handed down to the point where it reached these French Freemasons and uh, and from there, they started to develop their uh, their version of the system, uh, and that 
that early stuff from Italy is something that we don't have a lot of. And so we can't make a lot of absolute statements about it either. It could be that their system was really huge and fully intact, and this is just what we have of it. Or it could be that it was really sparse and that there was not so much to it until Horta Gevlin and, and his pals got to it. Uh, but regardless, something happened in 1781 um, in the midst of all of that Masonic activity. And uh, I think that uh, we should also keep in mind that Cagliostro was running around at that time, and he was trying to promote this uh, this weird uh, style of Egyptian, or rather pseudo-Egyptian Freemasonry that he had invented, and he was trying to make this big reformation of all Masonic doctrine and getting everyone to join his thing, and it didn't really work out for him. But uh, but this was in the air, and. Um, as much as these symbols were a part of daily life in 1781, um, at least within certain circles, uh, that kind of uh, fake Egyptian rumor uh, was also a part of what was going on. Well, and that's bound up with the Egyptomania of the day too, you know, the Egyptian revival and that, you know, all of that, uh, which was triggered by the translation of the Rosetta Stone and, the you know the carter's um you know excavation of the tomb of tutankhamun later i mean so there was this also the spirit of obsession with ancient egypt and all things egypt which kind of like fed that even more i think yeah that certainly fed it along the way though it bears mentioning that at the time that um that uh all of those uh late 18th century Freemasons were making their claims. Sometimes they were based on philological stuff about um, the ancient Egyptian language. The Rosetta Stone had not yet been deciphered. No one could read hieroglyphics uh, when Corte Gevlin was writing. Uh, so um, later on, uh, all of those discoveries surely uh, excited the imaginations of the Golden Dawn crowd and all of that. But, um, but, but for these guys... Uh, it it is it is a little bit strange that they had uh, developed these notions, but it's it's based on older uh, sort of Masonic myths about about the origin of of the fraternity that maybe um, they built the pyramids or 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 basically any wonder of ancient architecture. There's a story about how Masons built it and. Uh, uh, and I, th- I thought it was the it, aliens. Well, uh, you know, uh, this is this is also a, a school of thought. There, there were maybe not as many UFO conspiracists uh, at at the time, but um, I'm sure that there there must have been been one. There there was probably uh, an early UFO guy. I don't know. I'm not a scholar of. Of, uh, of of UFO crackpots. It, it's, a, it's actually a really interesting subject, like how, oh, how interested yeah. people are in it. But uh, yeah, with this kind of thing, um, you just sift through dubious account after dubious account and you try to find some way of putting it together uh, that makes sense. But that interest in... Um, in Egypt and the crafting of, 
of weird fake Egyptian stuff out of it uh, just continued to develop throughout the um, throughout the 19th century. You get the right of Mizraim being founded in 1805, and then later the right of Memphis in 1838 and then they they merge into memphis mizraim in 1881 that's not too long before the golden dawn picks up the thread um in uh 1888 and uh yeah this is um uh, this is just something that was going on at that time and uh it's it's uh it's part of the tarot's history, actually, that people are making up so many weird fake stories about it. But I think that uh, certainly one of Waite's goals with the rectified tarot, which really was your question, um, is what is the rectified tarot? Or rather, you asked, what is the Waite-Smith tarot? And I, I suppose I should explain at some point why he called it the rectified tarot, which is tied up with all of this. But um, it was Waite's attempt to bring the symbolism back to its source. And, uh, and he, he regarded any tarot that tried to do that as a rectified tarot. Uh, he mentions in his pictorial key that Oswald Wirth had made a rectified tarot some years before. And so Wade did not regard his attempt as the first attempt, but uh, he did see it as something that needed to be done. Well, I, I actually, he, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, and, and he uh, did it admirably. Well, I, and I definitely see the, the Worth Tarot as a precursor to, to the Weight Tarot. Um, you know, they're not identical by any means. Um, they, they actually kind of work with a different Kabbalistic system. Um, but I, I just think it, you can't look at, you can't know the worth tarot and the weight tarot and not see almost like a, 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 a line of development, you know, different, different flowerings of, of a line of development that almost seem to want to happen on its own. It seems, I almost feel as if the tarot as a, you know, you could almost say a, a, an entity or something was, unfolding itself along these lines at this point and was ready to, to resynthesize. Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, that Waite saw what he was doing as part of a tradition and a trajectory. Uh, although he, uh, of course spends a lot of time debunking those late 18th century guys. He, obviously had respect for Court de Geblin at the very least. He was interested in, uh, in all of these materials, though, though sometimes they weren't entirely truthful. And, um, and when he started to formulate all of this, he threw nothing away that he felt he could keep and turn to a different direction. He spent so much time dissing on Eliphalavi. But, but, you know, it's at that time, if you weren't reading Levy, you didn't know what was going on with occultism. And so he <laughs> tries to take some, some of that Egyptian stuff and, and work it back in, in ways that fit, that fit the symbolism. As long as the symbol came through and you could understand the meaning behind it, this is what mattered to Wade. He didn't really care about 
uh, about where it came from. Origins were not as important to him as the meanings. And so uh, for him, these, these meanings were, uh, were mystical. And that's one of the reasons why I, I, uh, I mentioned that San Martin was, uh, uh, was related to um, those groups of, of uh, Masonic thought at that time. There, there's all this other fake stories, you know, that there's a, there's a Martinist rite of masonry that he founded and things like that. And that's not true either. That's no more true than the Egyptian stuff. But um, certainly his books were being circulated and uh, and people uh, cared about it. And a lot of uh, a lot of things were being said at that time about mysticism that Waite was uh, taking very seriously. And so you see that um, in 1901 when he puts out his study of, uh, of San Martin's life. And, um, and, and it's kind of also a summary of all of his books, uh, which is helpful because many of those books are not translated into English still. And um, Although, um, as, a, uh, as a side note quickly, uh, Pierce Vaughn is actually doing an excellent job with the translating of some of those books into English at this time. Yes, and I am very grateful to him. I I uh, I don't know him well, but I have I have met him, and and I have rarely spoken to a person who uh, has more eloquent things to say upon uh, weight or San Martin or, or any of these uh, these subjects. He's he's a uh, a really interesting dude, and and I am very grateful for everything that he's doing and has done. Yeah, he's wonderful. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, Waite couldn't really have started planning his rectified tarot before he did all of that work um, and research on San Martin or before he became a master mason. And those two things happened in the same year uh, in 1901. Um, but by, by 1906, that's when we really start to see a, uh, a clearly formed version of all of that stuff uh, in, in Waite's own words coming out in his studies in mysticism. Just to pause you there, that leads into one of our questions about this. Um, I wanted to know if you could, right along the same line that you're going right now, could you go into what the symbolist mindset is and, and how Waite sort of employed that symbolist mindset you know, through mysticism, because I'm not sure that anybody listening to this, when you say symbolist, they might not understand the full implications of that. Sure. Yeah. Um, Waite's idea of symbolism uh, was different than anybody's before, and I think probably different uh, from anyone since. Uh, Waite's idea of a mystic was one who could look, as he says, far behind these symbols. and. Um, the idea that there is something behind a symbol, that a symbol stands in for something else, uh, is, I guess, implicit in the idea of symbolism. But Waite saw symbolism as a form of substitution, that when you cannot have something, when you cannot explain something or show something, it has to be substituted for, uh, it has to be substituted with something else. And this is always kind of a lesser thing. It's a thing that refers to its subject through a sidelong, uh, manner of speaking or manner of showing. And um, 
uh, Waite makes a lot of comments uh, in his works on mysticism about the way that uh, that symbolism works. And um, I have a couple quotes pulled out here uh, that I wanted to share with you guys. Um, uh, one is from Lamps of Western Mysticism, which is a, a later revision that he did of studies in mysticism. And I think that, uh, that Lamps might be one of my favorite books by him. It's really, uh, if you want an introduction to Waite's work, uh, I highly recommend this. Uh, it's got a lot of references to uh, like older mystical thought, uh, medieval mysticism and things like that, that might be a little bit off-putting for someone that doesn't uh, know too much about it. But I find it way more approachable um, than uh, Way of Divine Union, which is really heady stuff. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, I think Way of Divine Union is his ultimate and, and, and most important mystical work. And I think that anyone who's read Waits works will probably agree, but, uh, but lamps of Western mysticism, uh, also the earlier version studies in mysticism is, uh, is vastly important. If you want to understand what way is on about with, with all this stuff, including, uh, what he's on about with symbolism. But, uh, Waite says in this book that the living knowledge of God is not attained by reason. Its pictured representations are but a figure or a shadow of the greater work. It is water in comparison with wine. And that, I think, really puts into perspective that although Waite likes symbolism and cares a lot about symbols and their meanings, that the pictured representations are not the whole thing. Um, that they're not the complete story. And uh, he says some stuff along these same lines in his Shadows of Life and Thought. He says, uh, it should be understood in conclusion that we are dealing here solely with pictured images, but the way of the mystics ultimately leaves behind the figured representations of the mind. It is behind the kaleidoscope of external things that the still light shines in and from within the mind. In that state of pure being, which is the life of the soul in God. And I mean, uh, that is Waite's whole philosophy in a nutshell. When we look at his tarot cards as, uh, as a collection of symbols that he's put together, uh, we have to understand that the reason that he has put them together is because he has uh, something to communicate. And it's not arbitrary. It's not read in. He really has uh, something to say, and he believes the symbols had that to say before he got to them. And this this is one of the things that makes the question of like who put the symbolism in the tarot a really difficult one because the the symbols are older than the tarot, and and the uh, the images themselves are not the symbolism. So there's really there's really uh, a lot of strange questions raised by this way of, of looking at the cards. Um, but there's a clarification that I think is helpful uh, that's in Way of Divine Union, where he says, we speak inevitably in terms of space and time and can approach things unseen only in a language of symbolism borrowed from the world of sense. And so uh, that, I think... Um, that that like drives home the fact that like really like we've got 
no other choice. If we're going to talk about stuff beyond words, we still have to do do it with words. We still have to figure it in in pictures, and uh, and that we are to some extent um, limited by this. But but we can find ways of getting around that limitation, and uh, and that's what we do anytime that we engage with a symbol from a mystical perspective. Uh, that was really well put. I'm, I'm I'm really grateful that that you articulated that that way. I just think that that's the essence there. And you're talking. I mean, that's that's the aim of poetry. I went and saw the um, the Rose Croy exhibition at the Guggenheim last year. Oh my and, god, I did too. Did you get the, uh, the the red velvety book that you could get of all the stuff? No, I didn't, and I'm kicking myself for it. I'm still going. I plan on getting it though. But I mean, you know, Paladon, you know, really all those, the symbolist movement was all about what you're talking about. And the, the aim was exactly what you articulated. I'm not even going to bother reiterating it because you summed it up so well there. But, you know, that's... Yeah, weight was totally steeped in that. And when you talk about the symbolist movement, this is specifically, I guess, for the benefit of the listeners, um, the art ex- exhibition that we're talking about is something that happened in France uh, with the uh, uh, um, with the, the Rose Croix Salon that was going on there uh, or I guess you say it Rose Croix Salon if you're really French uh, I'm, I'm going to say a lot of things wrong I don't speak French but um, uh, yeah that uh, that movement was uh, something that it spun out of uh, the whole broader romantic movement and the pre-Raphaelites are sort of, um, I guess, uh, from one perspective, a branch of the symbolists. But these, I mean, these painters are, uh, are all kinds of, they're, they're interconnected and, and it's very much a world that interpenetrated with the esoteric discussion that was happening at that time too. Hey, Stuart, do we have examples of, uh, you said that weight was, was rectifying the tarot of ex- examples of tarot decks that were inferior or flawed that, that required this upgrade. Yeah. Um, I, for example, uh, the, the older images that weight is working from are primarily, uh, the French ones that you see, um, uh, in the tarot of Marseille. Uh, these would have been the ones that those Masons were working with. And um, a lot of times they vary around a certain territory, uh, but they'll have like a few differences. And uh, Waite saw those differences as the product of people just sort of mindlessly copying things they didn't understand. And um, sometimes you see a a symbol that was pretty clear degrade into sort of like a weird blobby shape um, in the next copying because it's just not, uh, it's not understood. And or it's being done quickly, or, or or being done in a way that's sloppy. Uh, and you know, I guess uh, Corte Geblin's images that he provides in the Mon Primitif are uh, are not really uh, perfect either. Weight takes some uh, some elements from them uh, and and talks about them a lot, but. Uh, when he says that the tarot is rectified, uh, what he's talking about is not just that he fixed it. Uh, what he's 
actually doing is it's a very uh, it's a complicated play on words. Uh, when we rectify a spirit, uh, that is a distilling alcohol, and this is an alchemical process, and uh, it it connects with Wade's interest in um, uh, mystical alchemy, and also. Uh, one very important thing to note about the Masonic connections in the Rectified Tarot is that there was in Germany a thing called Rectified Masonry, and this is the, the Rite of Strict Observance. The Rite of Strict Observance uh, was a, uh, a German Rite of Freemasonry that uh, claimed to have Templar origins. Um, this is, again, one of these mythical origins of, of Freemasonry, but, uh, you know, Although this is not something that we can probably take like 100% seriously, uh, there was um, some serious myth-making going on. Uh, these, these were stories that captivated Waite's imagination. And uh, in the Rite of Strict Observance, uh, you, had, uh, you had elements that would get absorbed into the Knights Beneficent of the Holy City. Uh, and this is the Martinist rite that Willermaz would, would make in France. This is tied up with a lot of the people that were around Court de Geblin. And so when he says this is a rectified tarot, it's not just that he's like taking these symbols back to their, um, their like basic truths or whatever, or trying to express something that he sees as far behind the symbols. But he is also, from like a historical perspective, trying to reconnect based on his knowledge of the right of strict observance and uh, and basically like every other Masonic group that you could possibly imagine that existed then in England or existed basically at any time anywhere. Uh, he he took all of that learning and he rolled it into the rectified tarot. This is one reason why I say he could not have started planning to make this prior to 1901 because he was not yet a master Mason. And I think that it took him probably, it's my opinion that he, I don't know how many years it took him to get into the high degrees, but I think that within a couple of years, uh, he would have been through the Royal arch and, um, there's probably evidence of that sitting around somewhere. Maybe it's even somewhere public, but uh, I haven't looked at it yet. And um, it's a lot of information to parse. Uh, but uh, the rectified tarot, both in its major arcana and minor arcana, bear the stamp of the rite of strict observance and the Elecoen and um, uh, CDCS and and all of that stuff. And uh and this is one of the reasons why this absurd affirmation that's been going around that Pamela Coleman Smith designed the minor arcana or, or any element of the tarot is just, it's, it's not just not plausible, it's impossible. And there's, and there's also not one shred of evidence that she even understood the symbolism, uh, much less that she made it herself. Um, and, and the work that Wade had been doing for like a decade leading up to that point is the kind of work that it would take to design uh, a symbol set like this because it's, it's complex. Like it's really like, it's amazingly like, like impossibly complex. And, um, and, and the, the sheer amount of, of information that it organizes about all of these, uh, these different rights of masonry is astonishing and uh all of these are are uh 
regular Freemasonry. This is not Cagliostro's Egyptian Freemasonry, i.e. there were no women. This is not, these are not Masonic degrees that a woman could hold. So um, also Waite really took his vows of uh, silence uh, on Masonic and, and other uh, private uh, societies um, stuff pretty seriously. And uh, there is no way that he would have broken his vows in order to give information to Pamela Coleman Smith. And he even says in his autobiography that he had to spoon feed her on three of the Trump's major. And he also says that in general, he supervised the creation of these cards so that no free floating images uh, from his own mind or another would go through. Uh, I want to just steer this, keep steering this boat in the in, in this direction of what you're talking about. Uh, so going a little deeper here, then, what are some of these symbolic themes that you're talking about? Like, what are some of the themes that weight, you know, you could say integrated or brought out from the tarot, and you know, because. Because you said, you know, you said broadly that he did these. So what are what are some of the consistent symbolic themes that we find then? Okay, well, the biggest theme that you're going to find if you look at Waite's uh, rectified tarot is that of union. Uh, this is union with a capital U, the way of divine union. Um, this is something that uh, you see in his minor arcana as much as in his major arcana. Um, I'd say probably the card that shows it the most clearly and the most explicitly is in the minor arcana, and that's the two of cups where you have a man and a woman and they are toasting and, uh, above them you have the caduceus of Hermes and then you have uh, a lion's head on top of the caduceus and it's winged. And, um, there's a lot that can be said about the symbol, but something that, uh, uh, should be noted is that uh, that the the young man is holding a cup, and then he is reaching for the other cup that uh, is being handed to him by the woman. So you look at it, and at first it's like it's clear that they're drinking together. That this is meant to imply like like a toast, a covenant of some kind. Uh, but his hand is is reaching out. Uh, to take the second cup from her. And this is something that Waite talks about. Uh, he says that in Christian mysticism, there are two mystical marriages. There's the one that happens here and the one that happens hereafter. And um, uh, the two mystical marriages are a key concept in Waite's writing. Uh, that's what this image is about. Um, uh, he basically, he says in his in his commentary that there's stuff about this that goes well beyond divination like if you look at the two of cups in pictorial key he actually gets so excited talking about how there are things that go beyond the scope of divinatory meanings here that he actually forgets to list the reverse meanings and doesn't even put down reverse meanings for the card it's not just that the card resists reversal like some things it says oh it means the same thing when it's reversed he just just forgot to put it there because at a certain point he just stopped caring he's like well i i like to bring these old divinatory meanings in and make them uh, connect things together. And, and man, I've done a lot of work showing that that's actually a really important subject. Uh, but 
the thing is that these uh, these images have everything in them aside from whatever divinatory meanings he's assigned to them and um, and he designed them <laughs> there there's no no question about that um, uh, the uh, another example of the uh, a symbol of union is the rainbow that appears on the ten of cups you have a four person family beneath it a mother a father uh, a son a daughter uh, anyone who has got basic knowledge of um, of Kabbalism will know that there's the four letter name of God that's associated with the principles of mother, father, son, and daughter. And, um, uh, this is something that was talked about in the golden dawn, but it wasn't talked about in the same way that Waite talks about it in works like the Holy Kabbalah and, uh, Waite's Holy Kabbalah is definitely, in my opinion, uh, the book. If you're, if you're only going to read one book on Hebrew mysticism, you've got to read the Holy Kabbalah. I totally and, agree. Yeah, if I mean, there's there's going to be somewhere out there uh, a Hebrew Kabbalist listening to this who says, "No, don't read that. That's Christian Kabbalism." But guys, we have to lighten up about the idea that there's like a Hebrew Kabbalism and a Christian Kabbalism. The Zahar was written in 13th century Spain, and 13th century Spain had Muslims in it. It had Catholics in it. It had heretics in it. There were Neoplatonists, like on every single side. Um, and there is there is no way that the messianic material in the Zahar is just like pure Hebrew Kabbalism any more than we have pure Egyptian terror symbolism. Like there there is nothing like that anywhere. Right. Like there's not like there's not like some like 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 impossibly like solid lineage that we're just going to like hook it on to. And, and like, you know, Sefri Yitzira, like, all right, we can backdate this as much as we want, but there is Platonism in Sefri Yitzira. Absolutely. And that's not even going into how Gematria originates in Pythagorean Isosephia and probably came about in Alexandria when, you know, the Old Testament was tra translated into Greek. I mean, it just goes on forever. Yeah, so I mean, uh, if you're going to read a book on Kabbalah, uh, I like the Holy Kabbalah because uh, it will give you a good picture of the historical development without a lot of nonsense attached to it. Waite does not really have a stake in the historical argument because he doesn't care when it arose. And um, it also focuses specifically on the mystery of union, uh, which uh, is very interesting subject um it ties in with a lot of uh mysteries of sex in other religions um there is some stuff that if you are into kundalini yoga and all of that stuff um if you're into vedic religion uh you will see that it is a uh, very very similar material being talked about there and uh weight is is familiar with the, the Vedic stuff. I'm not sure what the state of availability was when he was alive, but he references it in a way of divine union and acknowledges that, uh, that there is, is not a specific religion tied to mysticism and that the mystical process is something that kind of transcends uh, a specific uh, doctrine or sect.
Cool. So other, other than the union symbolism, what other, what other major themes are there for you? Okay. Um, major themes uh, going on. Well, I mean, union is the overarching thrust of it, but uh, you also get this idea of veiled nature. Um, uh, this is, uh, this is an idea that has, uh, been around for a very long time. Uh, you go back to like days a day where you have like veiled ISIS, um, uh, and she is, is later allegorized as, as being, oh, she's not a pagan goddess. She's like nature. She's the natural world. She's like, uh, she's creation. And so then you have, um, you have uh, Christian and uh, and otherwise Abrahamic interpretations where it's like, well, oh, this is this is God's um, this is God's creation, uh, at which veils God underneath. And so, um, nature in her naked and unveiled form becomes an image of God. And you have that on the star trump. Uh, you have uh, nature with a little bit of a veil on the world Trump, just so the veil is like poised, like ready to, to come off. Um, the unveiling of nature is the taking off of the pictured forms. The same stuff that we were talking about earlier with Waits, uh, view of, of symbolism and, um, taking off that veil of nature is, uh, is kind of the, it's the process of, uh, of Waits mystical endeavor. And that's what his tarot is about. Um, so you have the high priestess too, and that's she's she's in front of a veil, and she has a veil on her head, and um, uh, she embodies the reflected light of the moon, which is sort of like the same sense of of like indirectness, of um, of like seeing something through something else uh, by means of reflection, uh, that you have like the the veil and the light filtering through it. Uh, and sort of illuminating the pictures upon the veil. It's the same symbolism as the, the moon reflecting the sun's light, the sun usually being understood as, um, as God, whereas the, the moon is associated with Mary, at least in the Christian paradigm. But this is a, uh, this is a symbolism quite a bit older than Christianity, which was familiar to the Greeks, and uh, you find it uh, in the Persianate world, and... Uh, and it's it's been around, um, but I'd say that the, that's besides union. Uh, there's the symbol of the person you're unifying with, and that is this like ultimate magic girlfriend, veiled nature, or the anima mundi. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, uh, this is this is something that uh, you know will probably be obvious to anyone who has uh, spent some time with the tarot. But I think that, uh, that even if we're like, Oh yeah, we understand, we understand the veil of the high priestess. Like we need to get used to the fact that this is something that is so difficult to understand that like wait at the end of his life was still probably trying to understand it. And that, um, that there is something extremely, extremely deep and, and, um, and like, almost kind of like shattering about this experience of seeing nature unveiled. And, and this comes out in the Rosicrucian symbolism too, because you have um, Christian Rosenkreutz goes into 
uh, the basement of the castle in the chemical wedding gets led down there and he sees uh, he sees the goddess Venus unveiled sleeping on her couch and when she wakes uh, says the plaque that's by her she'll give birth to a king and um, later he gets in trouble for this transgression because uh, uh, he wasn't supposed to go down there and uh, it's implied that he will miss out on a really important initiatic experience because he saw things that he was not supposed to do and transgressed but then the story breaks off really suddenly and it's like he went to bed thinking that he was going to be in huge trouble but in the morning he just returned home and it's like wait what <laughs> like like what happened here what is this experience of seeing <laughs> nature unveiled that that like you know this is um this idea of like being punished for uh for this uh, forbidden encounter with uh, the body of Venus is something that you also see in older German material. Um, it's in Tannhauser, uh, where uh, the poet Knight goes into the mountain, and uh, this is like a lot of those folk stories where someone's going to like the realm of the the, the people under the hill or whatever. Um, the fairies. Uh, sometimes King Arthur is there. Sometimes it's um, Emperor Barbarossa, uh, sometimes it's, uh, you know, whatever king they decided to graft onto it, whatever king meant kingliness at the time that the story was being told, they would stick it on there. Um, or whatever, um, whatever figure they were assigning to, uh, like feminine sexual power, uh, oftentimes will, will be there. Uh, they call her Venus most and often. Um, You're tying in perfectly here because I was about to actually ask you about A, the uh, Rosicrucian elements in the tarot, and B, the grail mysteries that weigh integrated into the tarot. And you talk about that in your essay in Clavis. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about that, the grail mysteries, how they relate to the sort of pre-Christian Rosicrucianism and how weight integrated that into the tarot. And didn't he, didn't Wait well, write a book on the grail? Yes, he did, and it is the first one to feature information about the tarot, uh, at least in in the way that he would start to talk about it once pictorial key was, or yes, at the time it was just the key, uh, was out there. Um, in 1909, he put out Hidden Church of the Holy Grail, and this is uh, this is a book that can be difficult if you have not familiarize yourself already with the sources of grail mythology. Um, the one that if, if anyone is listening who wants to do this, uh, if you want to start, um, go pick up Burton Raffles' uh, translation of Chrétien de Troyes. Uh, his Percival is awesome. And Percival is the story of the grail. Um, uh, you'll be enjoying it so much that you'll be disappointed once again when this story is also incomplete. Uh, Chrétien died before he finished it. But the interesting thing about this is that it caused all of these other writers to be like, oh my God, we have to finish this story. We have to know what happens. And essentially what goes on is that Percival, this knight is, uh, well, he doesn't start out as a knight. He's just a kid. Uh, he gets kept away from knightly experiences or like knowing about knights uh, because his mom is afraid that he will run off and try to be a knight. 
as soon as he finds out about nights, he's like, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And his mom is very upset. Uh, but he goes and he does it. He becomes a knight. And uh, maybe because he is like so cut off from the world uh, or uh, maybe he's just dumb. He's kind of, he is described as being horribly Welsh, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> uh, is maybe a, a way of saying that he's supposed to be like a complete idiot. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't feel that way about Welsh people, but I think maybe the author <laughs> did. But uh, uh, that's how I feel about yeah. Dominic. <laughs> yeah, my wife thinks I'm Welsh. Yeah. Well, uh, Percival is um, is characterized as being kind of a dumb, loudmouth who's not able to do anything uh, socially acceptable, but he's like so innately talented and so great that he's able to just succeed at everything that he tries instantly. And he's very used to succeeding. Um, but uh, then he accidentally stumbles into the hidden grail castle which sort of stands in for the the mountain that you can go inside to enter into the the realm of the spirit or whatever and um he sees a procession of uh of different hallows um these are like holy relics um that are being paraded by the dinner table and um he sees among them uh, one thing which is described as being a grail and no one really knows what this word means precisely. It seems to indicate some sort of a dish that you would have at a table, maybe a, maybe a cup, maybe like a, a shallow um, platter that you use to hold a fish with some sauce on it or something maybe. Um, this is maybe a little bit suggestive because of the, the Christian association with, with fish. Um, but uh, anyway, the grail is in that original or I guess I don't want to say original because it appears to be drawn from traditional materials. But um, in that first version of the uh, story of the Grail uh, by Chrétien, uh, we have um, these things being paraded by and Percival uh, fails to ask who the Grail serves. Um, who is it for? What is the meaning of all of this stuff? And, um, and I think that that maybe this is allegorical of you know these symbols and images of of uh, of of various systems, including the tarot, are paraded by us. This panoply of, of of images faces us every day as we see the veil of nature all around us, and and we fail to ask who does it serve. And um, because he doesn't ask who it serves, uh, the king who is uh in a state of illness uh is not healed the curse is not broken uh everything good that could have come of him asking who it serves doesn't happen and he gets kicked out of the castle or he goes out of the castle and can't come back rather and uh the first thing that happens is he runs into this girl and she's like she's like there's no castle around here what are you talking about and he's like oh i went in this crazy castle it was really weird and and she's like, you're such an idiot. That was obviously the Grail Castle. And so he experiences a lot of regret. And then it goes into this sort of uh, subplot about Gwen, and he's doing a lot of nightly stuff. And we never really get back around to the redemption of, of Percival, if that is what was going to happen. But a lot of authors uh, 
do try to redeem Percival. And that's what all these continuations are about. Um, uh, Waits' Tarot is about redemption, uh, as all of his work is. Uh, Waits' main interest was um, uh, was restoration of uh, of humanity back to its proper place, uh, and it's a very positive philosophy because um, it's, it's similar in many ways to Buddhism. And I guess, as as Waits says, uh, um, the the mystic is is kind of uh, carrying all faiths uh, to some extent in his heart because, um, at the bottom of mysticism or the top or the middle or whatever kind of spatial metaphor you're going to use again, way says we, we speak in terms of space, but it's not really about space. Uh, there is, uh, just one thing. And this is the, um, the one thing of, of alchemy. And you can see that these systems are sort of blurring together and this blurring effect uh, this is what Waite called the secret tradition in Christian times. Um, there's a, a guy named Richard Mason to watch out for who's doing a lot of study about what Waite meant by that term, secret tradition in Christian times. And uh, he's doing very, very good work right now. And uh, his book will probably come out uh, before too long. Well, and that but, brings me to the question I want to ask you related to what you just said, which is, what do you? What would you say? Wait, meant by the hidden church of the Holy Grail or the hidden church? Well, I mean, this is uh, this is a question that um, that maybe has. I mean, historians will give you a simple answer. They'd um, they'd say, well, Karl von Eckerthausen uh, wrote Cloud Upon the Sanctuary and. Uh, it describes what appears to be some kind of like secret church within the church, and and that's what it is. And and this is the explanation that people tend to give. Um, but long before then, we get um, the interior castle of uh, Teresa of Avila. We talks about Saint Teresa a lot, and uh, and this is also. Uh, a, a hidden church of sorts, and what what we should really understand is that all of these um, these various things. There's a a thing in in Waits' mythos in his uh, his fairy stories, which are really amazing, and and I I have um, an ambition to uh, to put them out into the world again. There's a lot of he would basically just write the same stories over and over again and revise them into different forms, and um, and it's really, really fascinating as a study of symbolism, but you often get houses uh, and buildings and um, and this intersects actually with some of his Kabbalistic stuff. Uh, he talks about how a house is always a woman. Um, it's an odd statement, but uh, I think that it is not uh, out of line with the fact that uh, the high priestess uh, is at least in one system associated with the Hebrew letter, which corresponds to a house. And um, there is uh, there is no no good system of Hebrew letter assignment in Waite's opinion. He's like, all of it is kind of made up. Uh, but occasionally he sees glimmers of the good symbolism in it. And this symbolism is something that's that's been around. Like, it is... Um, the, the idea that there is a hidden sanctuary uh, is something that occasionally inspires people to make a real 
hidden sanctuary, and, and there are certainly those still in the world today, where people who, for whatever reason, feel that, uh, that they cannot pursue spiritual matters because the world around them is, uh, is not friendly to uh, a life of the Spirit, they will draw together, or maybe they will um, uh, pursue uh, in isolation, but spiritually connected with other people who also pursue in isolation these kinds of mystical quests. And they they work towards um, towards uh, as I said a shared end towards uh, one thing, and uh, that's actually what it says on Waits tombstone. There's only one thing. It's an interesting epitaph. Very cool. But that 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 hidden church uh, for Wait in the simplest terms is something that whether you it would be a real organization that you could go and, and visit maybe even in like a building that is assigned to it or like you know maybe it meets in a masonic lodge maybe it meets in someone's house maybe uh it meets on the street or in pubs uh the hidden church the real hidden church is interior um it's in it's in the heart and uh and that way of the heart uh that san martin taught is tied up in Wade's conception of of what that hidden church really is. Precisely. Precisely. And I think that relates to the idea of interiority and the imaginal as opposed to imagination, but the imaginal realm, such as like Henry Corbin spoke about, um, you know, and I think that that is more the province of that, of that interior ecclesia. And interestingly, uh, as a, as a, Side note, you know, I think perhaps his mention that a uh, house is a woman, maybe perhaps that could be related back to Kabbalah with the sense that Shekinah relates to a tent that, or, or you know, a dwelling place in the wilderness. And then that kind of relates back to the, um, the uh, concept of Ecclesia being, a, uh, being depicted, for instance, by Hildegard of Bingen as a, as a feminine presence, really as Sophia. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, you're thinking very much along the same lines as Waite was here. And I think that anyone who spends a, a good deal of time with mystical subjects will come to these conclusions. And, you know, I, I, want, to, uh, I want to make it clear that when people talk about a hidden church, especially in the, um, in the 19th century, a drawing from Elie Falavi and other guys like him, you get this kind of notion that all religions teach the same thing and that there is like one way to be discovered, like the, the religion behind all religions or the tarot is the Bible of Bibles and all of that. And this is so fucked up because people <laughs> will basically, especially Ellie Fowler V, who, who is total asshole. Like <laughs> he, he's, everyone has good things to say about him. I don't think anyone tried to read his books. This guy sucks. <laughs> like he, he, he hates Indian people. He's like really, really down on Indian people and Indian religion. And he like, like he has awful things to say about women. Like, at, like Crowley, everyone knows Crowley is a jerk, but people don't give his supposed former incarnation of L.A. Falavi enough credit for, for being a huge jerk. But um, like, so he has this idea that he managed to spread to like so much of the 
the occult world or whatever you want to call it that was cropping up in the 19th century, that all religions are teaching the same thing, that the tarot is the Bible of Bibles and that everything is that everything is like encapsulated in, in all systems uh, in the same uh, same way. And this is just not true. People who, ha- who say that all religions teach the same thing have not studied enough religions. They all have totally individual maps of, of human consciousness that they have lovingly delineated over who knows how many centuries or millennia. And they're, they are all unique. And, and it, would, it would be a considerable loss if even one of them uh, were to be gone without, uh, without being to be revived. So, like, the, the thing about it, the way I have explained it to my students, is that when it comes to mysticism, it is uh, like you are climbing a mountain. And you may have climbed a mountain, but you cannot say that you climbed another person's mountain, that somebody else may be climbing a different mountain. And their, their experience is, is, like, totally individual it's kind of like an existential thing that uh you didn't climb all mountains you climbed your mountain and maybe a religion is like a mountain range somebody climbing in the pyrenees is not climbing in the himalayas but the thing is that people who have been to that same altitude uh know what it is to be up there and they will recognize that in each other i think and um they say I I haven't been to your mountain, but I've been up there, and uh, and I think they maybe also see the same horizon. So, very interesting uh, way to put it. Yeah, there there is uh, there is something to this Rosicrucian mountain business, uh, I think, uh, and the idea of going inside the mountain is is pretty close to the idea of going up on top of the mountain. Again, space and distance are not such a thing. Uh, and and whether we're talking about one historical iteration of it or another, um, uh, there is there is a human experience which is real, which is uh, described in Waite's way of divine union, and he says it can be obtained on these different paths. That the Thomist will walk away from it a more convinced Thomist, and the Vedantist will walk away from it a more convinced Vedantist. Yeah, perfect. And, and on that, it's truth. There's truth at the bottom of the well. Absolutely, and that's we we go into that you know regularly on here too. Is that this isn't just about learning a bunch of information or you know assimilating and memorizing uh, unusual information to present it to other people as a form of social quantum. It's there's a purpose behind all of this, and that is a direct experience. But the direct experience loses something in translation. And on that note, um, I wanted to ask you. So let's talk about the second, because let's talk about the second set of tarot trumps that he just that he designed and uh, what what and what it was employed for, what it was used for. Uh, well, okay. So I'm not a member of the FRC, so. I will try to answer that question as well as I can with the publicly available materials. And as you know, if you've read Secret Tradition and Silence, uh, those materials are um, imperfect. Uh, There's an out-of-date version of the FRC rituals out there. Um, Wait kept on working 
uh, on these things until he died, basically. And uh, and he did finish them to his satisfaction, like basically like like at the moment of death, he's like, okay, it's good. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, like that must have been what killed him after <laughs> after working so long. He's like trying to get to this point. I think it must have. It must have uh, stopped his heart to realize he had, had finished. But I guess you know we reached the we reached the end of mystical activity, and there is a place of rest. And uh, I think he probably entered into that that place of of rest, a happy man. But he he kept on working on that stuff basically the whole time. And what we have is only like the first draft of the FRC rituals. Um, he was leaked under really, really weird circumstances at the beginning of the 21st century. And uh, um, there's some images of his uh, tarot, second tarot that he designed for the FRC. Some people may not know about this, uh, even though it's, it's been out there. There's been information about it um, sort of circulating since about the 1980s. Um, Bob Gilbert talked about it a little bit at a Golden Dawn thing. Um, I think it was in the nineties. Uh, so, I mean, it was being discussed, but, but people did not really realize the magnitude of, of what this, of what this is. And, and, uh, the person who dug it up, well, I say he dug it up, but he purchased it on eBay under very, very suspicious circumstances. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Marcus Katz, uh, he yeah. has he's a charlatan. He has, That's what he is. He's a joke. Yeah, Marcus Katz sucks. Um, uh, I'm not gonna waste words on him because he's not worth it. Uh, Wait never wasted words right. on Crowley, and we should follow Wait's example. Uh, but uh, suffice to say, when he attached Peter Gabriel lyrics these images and said that they were the explanation for them or when he took ideas from Aleister Crowley and said that they were like there to explain Wade's tarot the reason for this is because the FRC threatened to sue the pants off him if if he did anything with this stuff and uh, I mean the, the the materials that we have by which I can talk to you about this stuff are not sufficient for me to say anything really that good. But what I will tell you is that they were not designed for divination. They were designed for the ritual use of the fellowship, um, that they are mystical images that uh, show the 22 uh, major cards plus an extra one uh, for Doth. And so, uh, Doth, for those who don't know, is um, a concept in uh, in Kabbalism. Uh, it corresponds to knowledge, and um, and there's there's a lot that can be said about Doth that I I'm just not going to say <laughs> uh, because it's a lot. Um, but uh, this this set of images uh, is out there now. And unfortunately, it is out there without uh, anyone to give a really good explanation of um, why Wade created them. Uh, I think that probably even with everything that Wade ever wrote about them, they remain something of a mystery, as all true mysteries do. 
uh, but they were they were used in order to to illustrate some of the conceptions of the mystical process that Waite developed after he had left the Golden Dawn system and sort of extended everything that he saw that was um, beneficial in it, which mostly lasted over, I think, from uh, former Rosicrucian systems that it drew from. And he he attempted to create a a real Rosicrucian group in the spirit of the old ones, and he may have actually gotten the charters to do this. No one really knows who the Rosicrucians were or uh, or are. And if you're out there listening, brothers of the Rose Cross, uh, um, thanks, <laughs> because it is thanks to them that uh, that we have these images to puzzle over and uh, certainly puzzling over them has enriched my life. And I started this uh, journey with tarot cards uh, as an atheist and uh, I am no longer an atheist because uh, there have been a lot of experiences that I've had by looking at these uh, symbols and thinking about the things that they represent that um, I, that reveal to me something about uh, about myself and my consciousness and and what uh, what they what they have to say is uh, profound beyond anything that I could have created for myself. I, I don't think I have read these things, and I think that um, I think that uh, they're they're there to transmit something. Uh, something good. So, very nice. Uh, I, I I hope that that anyone who encounters these images uh, will simply uh, take them for what they are and read Wake's work, because honestly, all of the mysteries are not locked up behind some kind of initiatic paywall. Um, you <laughs> just you just have to read his books, and they're on archive.org. They're like you know, in used book bins, they're collecting dust because people, people don't read these things and, and it's there for you to read. It's, it's so available. It's more available than it's ever been at a lower, uh, like price of entry than it's ever been. Uh, as, uh, as Waite said, in matters of the spirit, it's sort of a matter of supply and demand. And, uh, the joke there is that there is an infinite supply and there is no demand, so we we get we get this for free. Well, or hey, close to free. Uh, you'll 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 not get Waits books in first edition for free. I'll tell you that much. Hey, I, I hate to say it, guys, but I think we're coming to the end of our time. Um, I don't know if you wanted to touch on anything else, Janice or uh, Stuart. Um, no, I thought time. that was I thought that was great. Uh, and you know, there, it's true. It's all hidden in plain sight. People need to do the work. It's it's about that. Just do the work. Cool. So, yeah. Stuart, um, is there a way for people to follow you, um, follow what you're doing, and keep up to date on on uh, on the book? Um, do you do? I assume you do tarot readings. Is it possible if someone listening wanted to get a tarot reading from you to to get that done? Yeah. Yeah. 
I can give you guys my email. Uh, it's my name, Stuart Sudicum, S-T-U-A-R-T-S-U-D-E-K-U-M at gmail.com. Just write me. I'm, I'm available. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in so many uh, projects, uh, both public and private at this point that like I have real time to do um, events and stuff. I was doing event organizing for uh, a long time, but I've, I've uh, definitely been absorbed in the creation of this book for, for a long time. But I do have a, uh, I do have a class um, that I teach on, uh, on this material that anyone who is really interested uh, can just write me and I'll send you a syllabus and, uh, um, and it's, it's open to, to anybody who wants to learn. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Stuart. I mean, you're a, a fountain of information on this topic and I really, and, and, and I'll speak for Janice as well, really appreciate you coming on to take the time and talk to us about this. Yeah, thank Thanks, you dude. so much. Yeah, it was an honor. All right. Catch you later. Okay, there we go. The episode is all wrapped up, and we hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to say thank you to Stuart again for his time and for all the great info that he was able to share with us. We look forward to talking to him again. Stuart, we'd love to have you back on the show. Keep us updated with your book. We are really looking forward to that. Otherwise, we are done with this episode. You can always find us on Facebook. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with us. And we have a website, themagicianandthefool.com, if you want to go that route and email. We appreciate you being here with us, and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.